Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Journalists tend to follow this negative pattern of protest coverage. We wanted to really get at what are the factors that are leading them to do that kind of coverage? And that would help us to better understand what changes need to be made so that they could improve that coverage. A recent survey of newsrooms has revealed something that we all kind of knew. Many journalists do a terrible job of covering protests. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Summer Harlow is an associate professor at the Jack J. Valenti School of Communication at the University of Houston, and Danielle Kilgo is an assistant professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. They've co-authored the study, Perceptions versus Performance, How Routines, Norms, and Values Influence Journalist Protest Coverage Decisions. Danielle and Summer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. What I'd like to do to sort of start these things is, is to get to know the guests a little bit before we begin our discussion. So l- let's start with you, Summer. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get in- interested in journalism? How did you end up at your current job at the University of Houston? So I've always been interested in journalism, and I actually spent about a decade as a newspaper reporter before going back to get my PhD in journalism. I covered immigration, I covered special projects, and I worked for a while in Central America as well, in Guatemala and El Salvador. And while I was in Guatemala, I was there, right, when there was this big protest that started on Facebook, and that happened right before I went back to do my PhD. And so that really led me down this path of combining my interests in protest and activism with journalism. And that led me to where I am now. How about you, Danielle? Sure. So I worked as a freelance and independent writer and designer and photographer when I got out of school for a while. So I did journalism, but then I moved over to public relations. I did nonprofit public relations and health and, and education and got a different sort of perspective of working with journalists. And it really inspired me to ask tough questions about how journalists got stories. Some of it was my frustration with the, with the work I was doing. Some of it was my frustration with how stories ended up in the press. And so I, I started grad school um, while, while doing that work and, and became very invested in trying to change the, the problems that I saw while I was in the profession. Well, that's... Particularly interesting when we're going to be talking about this topic here, this study that you did, because I think the study addresses some really kind of, you know, hard questions about journalism and and the way we cover protests. And I think we should sort of mention at this point that the research for this actually began before the 2020 protests that, that were around the country. But that doesn't mean that they're not applicable to the things that happened in 2020 or in moving forward. So tell me how this project this this study came about? So together and individually, we've been studying how journalists cover protests in various contexts around the world for several years now. 
And like others before us, we have found that in general, mainstream media tend to follow this negative pattern of coverage referred to as the protest paradigm. Journalists' narrative patterns, their sourcing decisions in terms of who they quote and whom they give credibility to, oftentimes that all tends to delegitimize protesters and focus on violence and destruction and marginalizing the voices of protesters in comparison with officials. And the substance behind the movements gets lost in coverage that focuses on the protest disruption to society. Most of that research that we did, though, was limited to content analysis. So we were just examining the content that journalists produce. And we wanted to move backwards, so to speak, and look at the people who were producing the content that we kept analyzing. We thought it was important to know, we know that it's important to know what journalists write since it can influence public perception about protesters and their causes. But it's also important to understand what factors lead the journalists to cover the protests the way they do. And if we know that journalists tend to follow this negative pattern of protest coverage, we wanted to really get at what are the factors that are leading them to do that kind of coverage? And that would help us to better understand what changes need to be made so that they could improve that coverage. So we decided to survey journalists who worked at the newspapers whose coverage we had been analyzing. And how many uh, journalists did you end up talking to? We ended up surveying 100 journalists from four different states, Texas, Missouri, Virginia, and Arizona. And those states were also where we looked at the 2017 protest-related stories in newspapers like the Houston Chronicle and Dallas Morning News in Texas, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Kansas City Star in Missouri, the Virginian Pilot and Richmond Times-Dispatch in Virginia, and the Arizona Republic in Arizona, obviously. (laughs) You know, we, we, we surveyed them. So we didn't, I mean, you said we talked to them. I just think it's important to know we, we sent a survey and they had open-ended and closed-ended questions that they were answering. So we got their reflective answers that they wrote down, but we didn't do interviews at this point for this particular study. Okay. And what information were you able to glean from the, you know, what they put down in your survey? Summer, do you want to take that? Sure. So The first thing that the survey revealed was that it's, I mean, it's hard to talk about the survey separately than the content analysis, because ultimately we found that journalists thought they did a better job of covering protests than they actually did. But in terms of the survey, one of the things that came out was the way that professional norms and practices really took precedent over their personal values in terms of how protests were covered. Journalists said that their personal values had no place in their reporting. A few had said that they had participated in protests, but they talked about it in terms of having to justify it or explain it away and would say, well, I was young at the time or I wasn't working as a journalist at the time, so it wasn't unethical. And so no matter whether or not they personally identified with a particular cause, they still saw that as being incompatible with being a reporter. They also said that we found that most of them were supportive personally of women's rights and immigrant rights, but fewer support reported support for racial justice related protests 
the removal of the Confederate statue protests or the NFL kneeling protests. And they also talked a lot about objectivity. That was something else that came up in this survey. This idea that they had to cover both sides of the story, that they had to, um, and they covered protests like they would cover any other story, which in our view really contributes to the problem of, of this negative pattern of the protest paradigm because they're covering these protests as if they're these one-off events, just like you would go cover a parade or any other breaking news. And part of that's because they, most of them said that there were no protest or social movement reporters specifically dedicated to that beat at the newspapers where they worked. And so that meant then whoever was on GA that day or you know, just covering breaking news that day would probably be sent to cover the protest. And so as a result, you know, it runs the risk of being this type of parachute journalism where they just you know, drop in for the day and it tends to be the shallow reporting that really doesn't focus on the deeper meaning and substance behind the protest. Whereas if there was a dedicated beat reporter who knew who was in charge and you know, who was organizing the event and who understand how social movements are organized and how they work, that that could really change that idea, I guess, of that parachute journalism and potentially allow journalists to better cover protests. So they're not looking at them as just these one-time events, but rather they are placing them in this context and giving them that um, deeper understanding that the public really needs in order to be able to fully understand the protest and potentially support it. We've talked to guests on on this podcast, some of whom have you know, sort of express frustration in, you know, in the way certain types of stories are approached. You know, I'm thinking of the the uprisings in, in Baltimore and the social justice protests that went over the last, you know, over the last year or so. At the same time, I've also seen journalists online sort of debating back and forth, well, why can't I go and participate in a, in a protest? And then there's this sort of traditional pushback against that, you know, this idea of, you know, well, the journalist has got to be objective. There's got to be this neutrality. And so I think the end result is kind of what you're describing is you end up with this sort of parachute journalism that, that doesn't really serve anybody. It certainly doesn't serve the, the people who are doing it. I know I mentioned that your research had finished before uh, the protests of 2020. Did you see the same sort of patterns occurring in 2020? So I have done a little bit of work looking at the at the coverage of 2020. I know Summer is working on that too. But for looking at broadcast coverage, those patterns seem to persist. There seems to be a, a, quite an emphasis on the things that we call delegitimizing on violence, the potential for violence on arrests, um, and less on the substance of the protest and the debate in a in a thematic way, you know, beyond George Floyd with this man in a, in a more thematic sense. But the 2020 protest coverage was different, though. I think one of the big things that I've seen so far is that there's there's an emphasis on police behavior more than we've seen before. 
Summer and I have worked on a ton of things together and I and I, there's many things that sh don't show up in our publications because we simply could not count them. They did not exist in coverage. And that doesn't always work when you're doing quantitative work. And so it was to me enlightening to see sort of the shift to focus on police behavior during protests in 2020 coverage, which is something we, we didn't see when we did the study in 2017. It actually doesn't surprise me too much, the focus on police, because if you think about it, a lot of reporters are comfortable when they're dealing with institutions. And I think that part of the, you know, in covering protests, you know, maybe they're, they're relying on handouts from the police or whatever, you know, taking a protest and contextualizing it about there's something wrong with the institution, I think it's easier for a reporter to go in, you know, even if that is the correct part of the story, it's easier for them to cover it because there are a lot of things that they're already f familiar with that instruct in that structure, but they may not be as familiar with, you know, the various groups who are doing protesting. That's just my observation. I think that that's a really important point because one of the things that journalists mentioned in the survey is that they were deeming certain protests and protesters as more credible and more worthy of news coverage based on whether or not they thought it was a legitimate protest. And part of that relates to how, as journalists, we're trained to give credibility automatically to officials. And we automatically give less credibility to non-officials. And so I think that we, we, I think journalists need to do a better job of being as skeptical of authorities and police as they are skeptical of protesters and non-officials. And something else that our study showed, and this is something that we have seen in basically all of our studies that we have done is that journalists tend to quote officials more than they quote protesters, or oftentimes they don't quote anybody at all in these protest stories. And when it comes to who is quoted, when it's the racial justice protest stories, those are the ones that we really see officials quoted significantly more than the protesters. That's interesting. Do you think that this is just indicative of the way journalists are trained? Is this something that's, you know, a, you know, I don't know, an environment that's that's created in the newsroom that's that's sort of doing this? I mean, how can we sort of move forward and change this? I mean, I think there's really two two answers to this question. I mean, one is there are some journalists that, you know, aren't fulfilling their objective goals and and contributing to this patterned um, portrayal of some protests, which is different than others. And I think we should talk about that a little bit, too. But I think that there is some intentionality for some journalists, and I don't think we can push that by the wayside. But overall, I think newsrooms are norms and routines in newsrooms. They are what's dictating what's happening. As you mentioned earlier, journalists feel comfortable with certain institutions and you know, journalism isn't about comfort. And I think we have to think about that and and really find ways to revisit what journalism should be doing is telling the story and telling the news and, and fulfilling the objectives of journalism really about being comfortable and being quick, or is it really about providing a as truthful and, and complete a story as possible before releasing it to the audience? I think that that's a, a, a critical step in, in redefining 
how newsrooms work and what routines and practices can stay <laughs> as we move forward and sort of think about how we can unwind these patterns. Yeah, and I'm glad you said quick because that actually kind of turns on on one of one of the things I'm thinking about. You know, I, I try not to say that journalists are lazy because they're actually very hardworking people, but sometimes they do fall back on these norms of, uh, well, I got to get this story in as quickly as I can. So let me talk to this person, this person, and, and then get it out there. And, you know, that's understandable. You're a very busy person. There are lots of things going on. But in that process, you're not allowing yourself to sort of examine the nuance of the story, a protest story. A protest story can be, be quite complicated. And having a sense of what the protesters are about, you know, who they represent and what they're saying takes time sometimes. You know, it's beyond just showing up the day of the the protest. It's maybe, you know, interviewing people ahead of time and trying to understand what the nature of the protest is and, and why people are out there on the street and then talking to them. You know, I think you said that as well. Which is what happens for most stories, right? You have a beat reporter who has contacts on that beat, who knows all the different players and their perspectives and you go out and you do your report ahead of time and you find stories and you're not reliant on breaking news just to report that beat. But because newsrooms for the most part don't have dedicated social justice reporters, we end up with that, you know, quick, shallow coverage. And so I realize that newsrooms are hard pressed to for funding. I know that we have seen, you know, so many journalists lose their jobs because of layoffs, we've seen consolidation, we've seen different types of reporting get cut. But I think that in today's day and age, especially, we need newsrooms, news organizations really need to dedicate the resources that are necessary to train journalists to be able to cover these social justice issues and to better understand how to cover social movements and protests, and then to actually have people or have journalists that that is their dedicated beat. I think that that would go a long way to improving some of this coverage. Just circling back to something, I'm not sure which one of you said it, but that the people that you surveyed and, and they volunteered that they, you know, they didn't support particular types of protests. They supported some over other types. Do you think that this plays into the, you know, allocation of resources of, you know, the willingness to go really deep on all protests or just sort of you're making that call in the newsroom and, and you're not really, you know, once you get on the street, you're not really doing the, the reporting you should be doing. I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at it because we did find that there was this gap between how journalists talked about their coverage and what they actually did, how they actually covered the stories. And while they all said, we believe in objectivity, we believe in balance and covering both sides of the story, those ideals did not carry over into coverage because the protests that journalists were more supportive of, such as women's rights and immigrant rights, those are the protests that received more favorable coverage. And the protests that they said they were less supportive of, specifically racial justice protests, the removal of the Confederate statues and the NFL kneeling, those same protests that journalists said they were less supportive of received more delegitimizing coverage. 
So while journalists talk about objectivity, whether it's their own personal biases that are getting in the way here, or if it's just, again, routines and practices, the end result is the same, that those protests about racial justice get more delegitimizing coverage and less favorable coverage than other types of protests. And it's interesting, we're talking here in in late April 2021, and you look back at how people are perceiving what happened on January 6th, how the, the media covered it, and the perceptions that people, you know, the audiences had of the racial justice protests, the coverage of that in 2020. You know, there seem to be a lot of people, you know, journalists who are very comfortable just saying, well, this is an insurrection. This is, you know, this is this is different. We need to look at it this way. But at the same time, you know, you had you have people who have a perception of of that there were all of these race riots going on in 2020. And then that, that somehow was in balance to what was going on, on on January 6th. So it just kind of shows you if you're not you know, giving context to all of these these protests, very easy for people to not really kind of understand the, the mechanisms at work. Yes, I think that the insurrection in, in January was was very different. And the way it was reported started out, started out in ways that looked like a traditional protest. And then that protest evolved into something that wasn't a protest anymore. And so the comparison inside our work, which focuses on protests, is really hard. And I think that the media, even the, you know, the public media debate about this was much more positioning how the institution of the police covered this differently or approached these two gatherings differently. But then you saw, you know, that that sort of recognition by journalists, maybe even the, I mean, I, I think it's quite naive, but the sort of naivety of the recognition of how police responses were different sort of take that that center stage. And um, it, I think it's an important, an important awakening, but I also, um, I don't know if, if the coverage of the insurrection wasn't not, wasn't so much unlike the Black Lives Matter protests. It, it, the police were unlike what we've seen at Black Lives Matter protests. And I think that that's the, that's the true difference that we saw there. Yeah. Just so you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter who, I, I work for Patch. We, we did stories about the protests that were going on in the Washington, D.C. area. In D.C., you know, we wrote stories about um, the, uh, you know, the federal government's response or lack of response or on, on uh, January 6th. And then the, the sort of way they responded uh, with violence, et cetera. Um, in in 2020, so I'm not exactly sure what it, where I'm going with this, but I guess what I want to say, you know, want to ask now is, um, well, I'm going to ask this in two ways. Do you do you feel that this awakening that that more people are aware that this is a problem in newsrooms? I do think this is a more public conversation now. I think it's it's a good conversation to have both within newsrooms and outside of newsrooms because we have this. You know, we, our media trust is at a all-time low um, with the general public and within specific uh, communities. And I think it's it's incredibly important to have the conversation of the shortcomings of the media that that they can't overcome. Like you're going to have to, you can't give literally the whole story. There's going to have to be some things that are accounted for and some things that 
can't be. We have to look at how people consume and use media. And I mean, what I think is most important for the public is that that there is there is more um, attention to both those shortcomings of just it being news, right? Of just the nature of news, but also the shortcomings of journalism generally, the ones that can be, the, the shortcomings that can be changed, it can be addressed. And I think that sort of having that, that conversation at a, at a pub, in a public forum where it's not all happening behind doors is really important for moving forward with transparency as they, as we, as journalists and, and in the journalism industry try to grab back um, the attention of, of audiences because we're crucial. Journalism still stands as like a crucial space for pushing forward the facts of ideas that like it's still important in our institution and we don't want to, you know, we, we have to continue to wrestle with bringing audience back and, and gathering audience trust. Okay. I, I actually have a question for Summer. So how, you know, how do we move forward as an industry? I, I, I know that one of the things that, you know, Danielle mentioned is, you know, the challenges that are sort of faced, you know, with staffing, with uh, the economics of it. I mean, do we need to come up with some sort of, you know, I don't know, a, a curriculum or a, a training that we can can start as we grow journalists, that, that this is part of what they do is that they begin to learn how to, to cover protests better? Or, you know, is this part of the you know, larger discussion about racial representation, diversity in newsrooms. I mean, where do we go from here? I think it's all of what you said. I think it starts with training. I teach a class called Media for Social Justice. And one of the things that we talk about is how students should learn to better cover protests so that when they go out into their newsrooms, they can actually do a, a good job of it. And one of the things that students sometimes ask is, why is it that we have to do a better job? Isn't that being biased toward the protesters? And Danielle and I have discussed this before too. And it's not about being biased toward the protesters. It's about not being automatically biased against them. Most of our news coverage is already biased in favor of whoever is at the top of the power hierarchy structure and whatever different story it is that we're thinking about. And so in this case, protesters are not at the top of that hierarchy, especially if we're talking about protesters, anti-racism protesters. So that means that we need to do a better job of training journalists to recognize that a lot of the, the practices and norms and values that they have are automatically biased, biased against the people at the bottom of those hierarchies. And so I think that recognizing that is step one, right? So you train the student journalists and then hopefully there will be more and more trainings for professional journalists. I know that Danielle and I have both participated in some of those types of trainings trying to improve protest coverage. And then we've also talked about the need to bring back postmortems in newsrooms. And for, you know, the Kansas City Star, where I actually used to work, um, they did this, where they went back through all of their coverage, specifically looking at race, not just protests, but looking at how they covered the Black communities in Kansas City. And they issued an apology saying, you know, that 
our reporting was racist and we need to do better. And I think that if we can have more of those types of postmortems where journalists actually go back and analyze their content and are willing to be frank and open about where there were problems and where there is need for improvement, I think that that's the first step. If journalists aren't willing to recognize that there's a problem, nothing's going to change. So the more training that we can do and the more backward looking at content that we can do, I think we'll, you know, those are some of the steps needed. And what's interesting is the training that people talked about in 2020 was, you know, how can make sure you train your newsroom so that they, they know how to be safe in a protest. So starting from a point where the journalist is expecting there could be violence and, you know, how does that impact the way that you, you're going to cover something? You know, not that I don't want journalists to, to think about how to keep themselves safe, but, you know, going in with that assumption that, okay, there may be violence and, you know, how does that, what does that do to you, you know, the way you approach things, your willingness to, you know, go deeper into a, to a story. And the training is beyond just writing your telephone number on your arm and making sure you have your press pass and telling somebody where you're going to be, but, but maybe actually what can we do to make sure that we're telling the story? The other thing I think about is going back to the balance issue, this idea that you have to present the other side. I mean, you go there with this idea that people are protesting, they're on one side and, and, you know, the government or whatever is on the other side. So you sort of, by default, you put yourself in a position where you feel you have to represent both sides, but, you know, go to a protest and cover the protest from the protesters point of view. Personally, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing or an unobjective thing. I think it's part of the job of telling what the story is. And I think it's away from that, that sort of helicopter type of reporting we were talking about before. I think there's also, I mean, aside from recognizing the problem in the newsroom and doing the training, I think there's also, for lack of a better word, a cultural competency that journalists need to have. We know there's a diversity problem in journalism newsrooms. We know that the coverage of protests is most problematic when it comes to issues of race and racism. And I think that that speaks volumes about the kind of training that needs to be done. Yes, yes, let's keep our journalists safe for sure, but also let's inform our journalists about what racism really means and how it really works in the system and how it really works in specific communities because it's uniquely different everywhere, right? Some some may find that racism is most you know, cruel, cruel actions shows up in, you know, in water pollution or something like that. Other people may find that it's in their police force. You know, it's vastly different and elusive in many ways until you are willing to stop and take a look both in your communities and how it works through history. And that's just not something that an education system has well provided to people in the United States like ever. And I think that it's it's prime time to, to say, we're going to read books now and we're going to spend the time. The information is there, but I think we have to give journalists the time and the opportunity, especially journalists that aren't black or brown, right? Especially the, to give them the time to learn. And it doesn't just come from a book. I think it also comes from, you know, immersion in their communities and, and really knowing who their communities are, what their grievances are, these things can be mapped ahead, just like advocates can. It doesn't have to be 
thousands of people in the street, you can know who's there, you can know who to look for. It just takes some foresight to know that one, racism affects everything, everywhere. And two, that it could be, like it could be in your city soon, right? It probably already is, but the protest could be in your city soon. There's no one who's exempt. And so, you know, being prepared for that and, and knowing the community and knowing where people are, I think is an essential part of understanding how to apply some of the curriculum and, and trainings that are being developed right now. Yeah, I agree 100% with what you said. I don't think as soon as you start like paying attention to, to, you know, just paying attention to the protests, well, why are people protesting? You know, it's violence, it's police violence. Oh, but it's also has to do with economics and, and the, the availability of healthcare and, you know, support for the school system and opportunities and this, that, and the other thing that it, it permeates all parts of the society. And, you know, having a reporter who is willing to view the world in that way, I think is a good first I mean, first step. I think it's a good first step if everybody could begin to see things like that. And part of what we do as journalists is we we talk to people and we tell other people's stories. I mean, this podcast talks a lot about, you know, newsrooms trying to become more diverse or, or trying to reach more diverse audiences. And this is so that they can become, be more sustainable because America is changing. And, you know, these are all the same conversations, all different aspects of the same conversation. So let's kind of just sort of wrap this up. Were you particularly surprised by the findings that you had? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that we've done so much work on protest coverage that when we looked at the content analysis, there were no surprises there. We saw that the anti-racism protests were covered more negatively, that officials were given priority in terms of sourcing, right? That's what we have come to expect. And then just from our own, you know, professional experiences, I think we were also not surprised to see that journalists think they're doing a good job. And I know that when I've given interviews and and talked with journalists about this in the past, they push back against this idea that maybe they're not covering protests in the, the best way. Now, granted, that was all prior to this past year. I think maybe now there's a little bit more of a recognition that they could do a better job, that they can do a better job. But I don't think we were surprised. And that's unfortunate because that says a lot about how ingrained journalistic practices and routines are and it says a lot about how hard it's going to be to change perceptions about what good protest coverage looks like. I know that last summer Axios told its reporters they could go protest and that was I, I interviewed a whole bunch of journalists last summer about this and most of them said wait no whoa that's where we draw the line right you can't go protest. At the same time, though, they also talked about how when it comes to racism and social justice issues, they think journalists should be standing up more and saying this is wrong, that journalists should be taking a stance in favor of racial justice. And I think that that is something that we probably wouldn't have seen five years ago. And so, you know, maybe incrementally we're going to start to see some changes. Hopefully, I'm, I'm not overly optimistic because I know how journalism works. But the fact that so many 
at least among the interviews that I did, so many young journalists and so many journalists of color were saying, yes, you know, stance taking is okay when it comes to human rights, when it comes to being anti-racist. And so as those journalists move up in the ranks and as they hopefully become editors and get into positions of power within newsrooms, maybe we will start to see some improvements in coverage. I've had over 450 conversations on this podcast over eight years, and I have noticed a change in people's perception. And I agree with you. A lot of it has to do with younger journalists who don't understand why, you know, that these types of things are happening in the world. Why can I not protest? You know, what are these these strictures that I'm under that, you know, that don't seem to make sense to who I am and, and where what I think I should be doing in society? I think there is a change going on. I, I may be a little more optimistic <laughs> than, than, than you might uh, might be, but, you know, darn it, that's what I am. Thank you very much, both Summer, Danielle, for coming on the podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation. I could probably talk to you both another hour about this because I think this is so important. It's just emblematic of, of a lot of the issues that the journalists really need to be working on to just improve the way we cover our communities, the build more diversity in our newsrooms. And, you know, get people to trust us more. I think this is all the same sort of thing. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.